take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation. The topic this morning, it's, uh, it's an overview of Revelation, and we're going to do our best, Lord willing, to study the entire book. Obviously, we're not going to be able to study the book at any depth, but Lord willing, over the next coming weeks and months, we'll be able to do so together and try to understand this magnificent book that talks about the triumph of the Lord Jesus overall and His ultimate victory. As we begin this morning, I'd ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, and we're going to read just the prologue, the introduction to the book. It's found in verses 1 to verse 8, and when you have that, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word, and I will read it to you. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eyes will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Please be seated. It's a majestic opening, isn't it? It's a majestic opening to a majestic book that reveals to us the glory of God in a unique way. In his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton, whose theology I don't recommend, by the way, well, he made a passing comment on the book of Revelation that I think is a really fitting way to begin our study this morning. He said this, he said, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Now, he was pointing out the reality that over the centuries, many people have uh, tried to understand and explain the book of Revelation, but not everyone has been equally successful. In fact, over the centuries, some of the interpretations of this book that have been given have been quite bizarre. But while it's tempting to make fun of commentators with whom we disagree, we do need to acknowledge that the book of Revelation is a challenging book to interpret. Uh, if you've read it, you know that there is really a, a bewildering display of visions and creatures and symbols and characters and images. More than that, the Apostle John wrote to a largely Roman audience, a Roman culture some 1,900 years ago, more than that now. And so, of course, we're removed from kind of the, the ones who would have originally read this letter, this book, we're removed from them now both culturally and by time. And so that makes it more difficult for us to understand. One pastor put it this way. He said, Revelation was written for us, but not to us. So it's for us, it's intended for us, and yet it was written to these believers in the first century, and that means that we have work to do in order to understand the context into which it was written. So that is a challenge. 
So given the challenging nature of this book and the fact that we're removed from the cultural setting into which it was written, should we just give up and decide that we can't understand it and move on? And of course, the answer is no. And the answer is no because our God is kind and our God always makes the most important things most clear. And Revelation is filled with so many beautiful truths that are just crystal clear about the glory of God and the sovereignty of Christ and the loveliness of Christ and his control over all things and his care for his people. Uh, it's filled with worship in a way that teaches us to be a people who worship God. So we may not be able to fully unravel every detail, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't study it. Indeed, there's a blessing that's promised to those who will read it and who will meditate on what it contains. Uh, what is most clear in the book of Revelation is that the Lord Jesus is victorious. He's victorious over all of his enemies. The triumph of the Lamb will be fully realized, and the good news for us is that on that day we will be with him. We will see his glory. And even better than that, we will be with him forever and ever and ever. So this, of all the books of the Bible, this is the, one of the most hope-filled books and I'm praying as we study this book in days to come, we will be filled with hope as we think more about our home which is to come than we think about this passing life. So my task this morning is to give us an overview of the book of Revelation. There's 22 dense chapters as a result. We won't be able to say everything. A lot will have to be left unsaid. But again, our prayer is that we'll be able to study it more thoroughly in days ahead. But I wanted to give you some background on this book. Now, as you came in this morning, if you received the handout, you will find a lot of the content of what I'm going to go through in that handout. So you can take that home and perhaps read that more later on this week if you would like to. But I want us to kind of work through and set the context for this book so that as we go through it, we understand the book better. So let's begin with the author. In chapter 1, verse 1, the author identifies himself simply as John. Now writing in the second century, just actually a few decades after Revelation was written, Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, tells us that this John was the Apostle John. He says, There was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem, and that thereafter the general and, in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. So Justin Martyr tells us that this is the Apostle John, and really the tradition of church history tells us that this is the Apostle John, and that makes sense because who else could simply introduce himself as John and expect other people to know precisely who he was? This is the Apostle John. He's writing to these seven churches, as we'll discuss, and they would have known who he is because he was an apostle. Uh, as for the date, the date when the letter was written, this is actually more controversial. So those who would hold to the, the preterist school of interpretation, we'll talk about that in a minute, they understand the book of Revelation to be largely a prophecy that was written in the 60s AD. They understand it to be largely a prophecy of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem that occurred in 70 AD. And so they're looking at the 60 AD time frame for when Revelation was written, and that would have been during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. But most commentators have been swayed by the opinions of many of the church fathers, early church uh, history writers, that this book was written towards the end of the first century. 
And they believe that because of the witness of those who lived shortly after this. They also believe it because towards the end of the first century, there was a widespread persecution that occurred in the Roman Empire. And you can tell even from the very beginning that persecution is occurring. After all, John was in exile on Patmos because of his faith in Jesus. And so most people believe that this book was written towards the end of the 90s AD, at the very end of John's life, and during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Now, in terms of the audience, or in terms of who the letter is written to, the book of Revelation is very clear that this letter is addressed to seven historical churches in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is what is now the land of Turkey, or the nation of Turkey. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. You'll see what the Lord Jesus says there. He says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so the Lord Jesus, he addresses these churches directly. And that's really what you see in chapter two and chapter three of Revelation. He's writing specific letters, really prophetic words to them where he is uh, addressing them about particular things that are happening in their lives. Now it is uh, very reasonable to understand that the Lord Jesus, if he is addressing this letter to them, would have intended for them to have gleaned something meaningful and helpful for their present context. So not just chapter 2 and chapter 3, but really all of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to 22 spoke to these local churches in their historical setting there in Asia Minor. And of course, because this is inspired scripture, uh, the book of Revelation speaks to all Christians of all places of all times, which means that it has a message for us as well. We are to learn much from this letter. In terms of the purpose of the letter, it is important for us to remember that these seven churches in Asia Minor, they were undergoing persecution. They were facing pressure, and in some ways probably increasing pressure, uh, not only from uh, the Roman authorities, but also from those around them in their society. And in particular, on two occasions, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, you see that there were unbelieving Jews who were at work persecuting these early churches. And so, John is writing to suffering Christians, and he's writing a letter to these suffering Christians. He's giving, giving them this revelation of Jesus Christ. And of course, this book deals with their current situation. It's intended to be a letter of encouragement. It's intended to be a letter of comfort to them. It is a, also intended to be a letter that explains to them God's purposes in history. And so you see in the book of Revelation that the Lord Jesus, as he reveals his glory, he reveals what will happen in the world all the way to the very end of the world. And he shows his glory through all of it. As such, Revelation is a letter of encouragement. It is intended to help its readers keep the balance of John 16.33, which is, you know, in this world we will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus Christ has overcome the world. That's what we're supposed to see in terms of comfort here from this book. In terms of genre, or what kind of literature this is, uh, many commentators have noticed that there's similarity between the book of Revelation and what was occurring in the first century and a little before that in terms of apocalyptic writing or apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic writing was characterized by a focus on eschatology. So kind of looking to the end of the world and seeing how God is going to come into the world and bring the world, as it were, to a final reckoning. But, as, uh, but these uh, apocalyptic literature, re these writings, were also focused on kind of some more general themes like the battle between good and evil. 
And they were also characterized by using symbols and visions and imagery and even angelic guides that would guide the reader through so that they would understand the main point of the writing. And obviously, the book of Revelation contains a lot of these elements. That said, in other ways, the book of Revelation is different from the Jewish apocalyptic writing that you find in the first century. So the apocalyptic writing of the first century was, was generally pseudonymous. Uh, the idea is that the author did not name himself actually, but instead he took on the identity of someone else, some famous person from history and wrote from that person's perspective in order to allow the writing to have more weight. In contrast, the Apostle John actually wrote this letter that bears his name. Second, the apocalyptic writing of the first century often viewed the, the world as it is now, this present age, as both evil and meaningless. But you see, Revelation doesn't view the world that way. Instead, Revelation shows us throughout that God is working out his, his perfect and good purposes in the world now, and that God is going to bring history to a perfect culmination where he will be glorified by all. So we also, now third, have good reason not to categorize Revelation as the same kind of apocalyptic writing that was taking place in the first century, and that's because five times in Revelation, John speaks of his letter, this book, as a prophecy. He calls it a prophecy five times. So, how should we think of Revelation? Uh, we should think of the fact that this is a letter that has prophetic elements. This is a prophetic letter. It's a prophetic, uh, it's a prophet, a prophetic letter, excuse me, that does, though, contain some apocalyptic elements. So I agree with many who would kind of classify Revelation along with other Old Testament prophetic books, such as Daniel and Zechariah and other books like that. In fact, we're not going to be able to interpret the book of Revelation correctly if we don't understand the Old Testament background because John is quoting these Old Testament books all throughout the book of Revelation and he intends us, for under, us to understand what he is saying. Let me give you then some background on the ways that different Christians have interpreted the book of Revelation over the years. There are really kind of four main schools. Now, I would have to imagine if we were all to poll each other, there are as many views on Revelation as there are people sitting here this morning, but there are four main schools of interpretation that have been seen throughout the centuries. The first is the historicists. And the historicists, they look at Revelation and they see it as kind of like a, a gradual unveiling of history so that as you look back on history, you can see how Revelation was pointing to particular events and particular ages and particular actualities that happened in history. And so they understand Revelation to be kind of a, a history written beforehand that now as we look back we can see. And they understand that this history is going to continue to be unveiled all the way to the very end when Christ returns. There's another school of interpretation called the Preterists. Now, we talked about them uh, just a few minutes ago, but we said that these Preterists understand Revelation to have been a prophecy written in the 60s AD about the then coming destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 70 AD. If you read Josephus, a Jewish historian, you understand that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was catac cataclysmic. It was disastrous. The Lord Jesus himself had prophesied that. And they understand that this is what Revelation is. It's this prophecy. Some of them understand portions of Revelation also to be about the destruction of Rome in 476 A.D. 
And so they understand Revelation to be a book that is concerning itself with events that have now passed, but a book that still teaches us good and important truths about God. There's a third group called the idealists. Now, I understand uh, a lot of this is, you know, if you're not careful, you're just going to go over your head. That's why we gave you the content beforehand so you can go back and study later, but just track with me as best you can. Idealists hold the view that we are not supposed to be looking primarily for specific fulfillments in the book of Revelation, though there are specific fulfillments in the book of Revelation. Instead, as one commentator put it, we are to interpret the book as an expression of the basic principles on which God acts throughout history. Most especially, idealists would say that God uses the symbols that he's revealed for us in the book of Revelation to teach us kind of the main overarching truth that Christ will be victorious over all of his enemies. And so we find hope in Christ as we study this letter. There's a fourth uh, group, uh, a fourth school, if you will, of interpretation called the Futurists. And Futurists understand Revelation largely to concern itself with the unfolding of what God will do at the end of time. When he judges his enemies, when he conquers them, when he executes final judgment, and when he establishes his eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, within futurists, there are actually two kind of like camps within futurism. There's the dispensational futurists, and then there are the non-dispensational futurists. Dispensational futurists believe that much of Revelation deals with God's purposes for ethnic Israel. And so they look to the Old Testament, and they find prophecies that were given to Old Testament Israel, and they believe that those prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the end times when the Lord Jesus preserves his Old Testament people Israel and brings them into a Jewish 1,000-year millennium. Non-dispensational futurists believe that God's focus in Revelation is on his church, which includes both Gentiles and Jews who have put their trust in Jesus. For my part... I'm a happy, non-dispensational futurist. I understand Revelation to be written about Christ's interest in particular with his church and what he will do at the end of time when he preserves his people, those who have trusted in him, and when he brings about the end of history. So in Genesis, the book of Genesis, God is telling us what happened at the very beginning of human history And in Revelation, he is unfolding for us what will take place at the very end of human history. They are book-end books. Now, that said, I do believe that the idealists are correct in emphasizing that Revelation, I think this is important to understand, is not only about events that will happen at the end of time or at the end of the world. Revelation also demonstrates that the same evil powers that will be at work against the people of God at the end of time Uh, have always been at work against the people of God in every age. Let me give you just one example. Revelation chapter 13 tells us about the beast that comes out of the sea. This is the Antichrist, and it's very clear as you read Revelation 13 that he heads up a political system that oppresses Christians brutally and leads to the slaughter of many, if not most, believers on the face of the earth. It will be a terrible event. But the reality is that same anti-Christian spirit has been at work in the world in every age. So Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC and Nero in the first century AD, they are little antichrists warring against the people of God, 
But a day is coming when the final and the great, kind of the capital A Antichrist, if you will, will come, and he will use that political power to persecute and oppress the people of God. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness and says that he will be revealed. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. And I do believe that we see a similar principle at work when you think about the false prophet at the end of chapter 13 in Revelation, and when you think about the great prostitute, the notorious prostitute of chapter 17. Now, it would be impossible for me to try to teach the book of Revelation by going through passage by passage and telling you what each school of interpretation you know, teaches about each particular passage in Revelation. I just wouldn't be able to do that. I don't think it would be helpful. And so I intend to teach the book of Revelation from a non-dispensational, futurist perspective, thinking about God's work in bringing history to a culmination. Some of this may be new for some of you, and yet our desire as a church is to be Berean and to look at God's Word together and to study it and to understand it as best we can. And I would ask for your prayers as we do so that God would help me to understand his word rightly, even as I try to help us as a church understand his word rightly. The final piece of background that I want to cover this morning is really kind of the structure of, of the letter. How does the book fit together? Many people have found a kind of a, an outline within the book in chapter 1, verse 19. So look at chapter 1, verse 19. Hear what the Lord Jesus says to John. He gives him this command. He says, Therefore, write what you have seen, what is... And what will take place after this? And they argue that the phrase, what you have seen, refers to chapter 1, which is the glorious vision of the glorified Christ. And chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is the what is portion, that is where the Lord Jesus speaks directly into the present context of those churches in Asia Minor, those seven churches. And they say that the phrase, what will take place after this, refers to chapter 4 to chapter 22, which records events that will happen towards the end of history when God kind of sums up history, if you will, and his glory is revealed. And I would argue that that outline is generally helpful. I think that is a generally helpful way to understand the book. But in terms of understanding the literary structure, I think the, the outline that George Eldon Ladd provided in his commentary on Revelation is quite helpful. He divides Revelation up into four primary visions. Four primary visions. If you have the handout, you'll have this in front of you. But first, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, there's the prologue. That's what we just read. That's kind of the introduction to the book. And then in chapter 1, verse 9, all the way to chapter 3, verse 22, you see the first vision. And the first vision is where Christ is seen in his glory. And then you hear Christ speaking to his churches, teaching them how they are to follow him. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 16, verse 21, contain the second vision. And in that vision, you see a series of sevens. You see seven seals, and then you see seven trumpets, and then you see seven bowls. And what's going on is that, that God is revealing how he is going to be judging his enemies, really the whole world. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, to chapter 21, verse 9, well, this is the third vision. And here, once again, we see from maybe a different perspective the way that, that God is going to judge his enemies. But in particular, this section focuses on the fate of the prostitute and the fate of the, of the Antichrist and the fate of the false prophet and the fate of Satan. And then ultimately, the judgment of all humanity 
including all who have rejected Christ. And then in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9 to chapter 22, verse 5, you see a fourth vision which pictures the eternal state. Here you see the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth just kind of pictured out for us so that we can see what eternity will be like. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6 to the end, verse 21, you see kind of the epilogue. And in that epilogue, you find a beautiful invitation to trust in Christ and find salvation in him. It's an amazing book, but obviously there's a lot there. There's a lot for us to cover. So this is the background. One, one other thought before we dive into the book, though, I think this is important for us as a church to consider. As I've studied the various book of Revelation, various views of the book of Revelation over my life and really in recent years kind of more intensely, I've been struck that nobody holds their view on Revelation because they're dumb. You see, many people who love God's word and study it well and treasure Jesus, they've come to different understandings of the best way to interpret this book. And so, as we do our best to interpret this book, I think it's very important for us to do so with an attitude of humility, because none of us have it all figured out. None of us have all the answers. And what we want more than anything is that God would bless our church and that he would guide us into his truth. There is a right way to understand Revelation, And we need God's help to help us understand it together. So let's be humble with one another where we disagree. And there will be areas where we disagree. Let's be humble towards one another in that. And let's serve one another. Really, my prayer is that this will be such a good spur for our church to be kind of a Proverbs 27, 17 church. Where iron sharpens iron. Where we open God's word together and we kind of flesh this out and try to understand clearly what God has revealed for us. Now, in our time remaining, I want us then to study the entire book of Revelation. (laughs) I want us to focus our hearts on four truths we see about Jesus as we work our way through this book. I want you to keep your Bible in hand because we'll be flipping around quite a bit. If you're taking notes, four truths about Jesus from Revelation chapter 1 to verse 22. The first point this morning is that Jesus cares for his church. We'll see that in Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to chapter 3 verse 22. The second point this morning is that Jesus is sovereign over history. We'll see that in chapter 4 verse 1 all the way to chapter 16 verse 21. The third point this morning is that Jesus brings final judgment. We'll see that in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, to chapter 21, verse 8. And then we're going to see, fourthly, that Jesus guides his people safely home. And we see that in Revelation, chapter 21, verse 9, all the way to the end of the book in Revelation, chapter 22, verse 21. Let's look at that first truth together then. Jesus cares for his church. Look with me, if you will, at verse 12 to 16 of chapter 1. Here's John's vision. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. Write, this is the Lord Jesus saying, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In chapter 1, verse 9 to verse 20, you see 
John's vision of the glorified Christ. Christ's glory is no longer veiled as it was during his earthly ministry. Now you see him as he is, and it is shining glory. It is magnificent glory that shines forth from him. It's blinding power that overwhelms John. And you see that Jesus, who is the God-man, is the one who overcame death. And now, because of his victory over death, he holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. But he doesn't only hold the keys in his hands. He also holds in his hands seven golden lampstands, which chapter 1, verse 20, tells us are these seven local churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the Lord Jesus speaks to John, and he gives him these letters to give to these churches. He commends these churches for the ways that they're following him. And then he corrects them for ways that they are failing to follow him, but instead have compromised with sin. And at the end of each one of these letters, the Lord Jesus, who is kind, he gives a promise to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. He tells them that Christians who heed Jesus' voice and follow him and remain faithful to him will receive eternal glory with him when his majesty is revealed. They will live forever. They will be unharmed by death. They will experience personal intimacy with God. They'll rule over the nations. They will be openly acknowledged by Christ. They will be eternally secure, and they will reign with Christ forever. These promises are made to all those who conquer, to those who remain faithful. And all of this, these amazing promises, they lead us to the observation that Jesus Christ cares for his churches. That's the thing that really stands out to me when I think about what he's doing here. What is he doing here? He is shepherding these individual churches that he knows by name. And there's seven of them, and I think that's important. I think we should understand that number seven to be a symbolic number that speaks of fullness or completeness. So as he speaks to these churches, he's speaking to an actual church, and he's giving them a message that is particularly relevant for that church in its present situation. But of course, these churches really stand for the kinds of churches you'll find in every age and every place. And so what the Lord Jesus is doing through these letters is he's speaking to all of his churches of all times, teaching them what it looks like to be faithful to him and calling them away from complacency and calling them away from compromise and calling them to obedience. That's what we're seeing in these letters. Here, Jesus is tenderly shepherding his church and he's calling us to faithfulness. You see, these letters demonstrate that Jesus knows his churches. He knows them by name, and it demonstrates that he cares for his churches, and he knows precisely how to shepherd each one. And brothers and sisters, that means that the Lord Jesus knows Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg. He knows us by name. He's aware of our present circumstances. He knows the ways that we are following him, and he knows the ways that we are wandering away. I wonder what he would say to us if he were to write us a letter. Would it be something like this? Christ's fellowship, you're zealous for truth. You love the gospel. You haven't forsaken your first love, and you excel at loving one another. But I have this against you. Some of you tolerate sexual sin. Even though it's killing you spiritually, some of you are clinging to pornography and to worldly forms of entertainment that I hate. Others of you have slowly grown cold. Your zeal for me is at low ebb. You've stopped spending time with me in the word and in prayer. And you've stopped encouraging other people to follow me as well. Therefore, repent, lest the light of your candle burn low and is quenched. 
I think it's important for us to think about what the Lord Jesus would say to our church because he knows and he cares. And here's the thing, he wants us to be faithful. And one of the most encouraging things about the letter is what does he say at the end? He says, it's too late for you. No, he says, repent. He says, repent. Turn away from that which is really robbing you of life and find life in me. Most especially as you read through these letters, you see that Jesus cares that his church would be characterized by zeal and by holiness and by love. So let's pursue those things. Let's be zealous. You know, the greatest contradiction in the world is a Christian who isn't passionate about Jesus. And let's pursue holiness. Let's forsake every sin. You can't fight against just one sin in your life. You have to fight against them all. Let's forsake every sin and instead pursue Christ-likeness in every area of our lives. And let's pursue love. And love, first and foremost, is for God. But then how is love manifested? It's manifested in love for our brothers and sisters, love for one another. So let's pursue love then horizontally as well. So that's the first truth. Jesus cares for his church. In chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 16, verse 21, we see a second truth. Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 4. And look at verses 1 to 3. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. And the one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, surrounded the throne. So here, John begins or to tells us about then the second kind of major vision. He suddenly called up to heaven. And coming to heaven, what does he see? He sees the heavenly throne room, and he sees uh, God himself on the throne, and God is surrounded by those who are worshiping him. 24 heavenly elders worshiping him, four living creatures worshiping him, praising God as creator, and then praising Christ as Redeemer. But central to chapter 4 and chapter 5 is the passage that Nelson read for us earlier, where John sees a vision of a scroll. It's a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. Now commentators, they disagree about the identity of the scroll. What does the scroll represent? I agree with those commentators who view it as a prophecy of events that will occur at the end of history. I believe that because as soon as the scroll is opened, that's what you see take place. You see seven trumpets and seven bowls. And these trumpets and bowls, they symbolize in time worldwide judgment. That's what they seem to symbolize. And it's important to understand that the trumpets are warning judgments, warning people of what is to come, not final judgments, but then the bowls, the bowls are final judgment. And when the bowls are poured out, well, when the last bowl, the seventh bowl is poured out, history comes to an end. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17 to 21 records that. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no one, like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail, because that plague was extremely 
severe. Now let's make two brief observations really from the whole section here from chapter 4 to chapter 16. One of the things that we need to see is that the Lord Jesus is revealed here as sovereign in his control over his enemies. Jesus' sovereignty is seen in his control over his enemies. In Revelation chapter 12 and 13, we are introduced to three enemies. In chapter 12, we're introduced to a dragon. The dragon represents Satan, the great enemy of God. And then in chapter 13, we're introduced to a beast from the sea who represents the Antichrist. And then we're introduced to a beast from the land who represents the false prophet. And together, this unholy trinity, they unite in order to fight against the people of God. And for a time, they are incredibly successful. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 7 says, And the beast was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. Friends, the beast is going to be monstrously powerful. And it will seem like he is invincible. The people of the world will say, who can wage war against the beast? Who can fight against him? But I wonder if you notice the word permitted in chapter 13, verse 17. It was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. What does that mean? It speaks to the fact that the beast is under the absolute control of our sovereign God. God is the one who says, thus far you may go and no further. So authority will be given to the beast for a time. The beast will use that authority in terrible ways, but you see it's only for a time. And when the time is over, the Lord Jesus will take the beast and cast him into the lake of fire where he will suffer, perish forever. And friends, you see the fight won't even be close. Revelation chapter 19 gives us a picture of this. Revelation chapter 19 verses 19 to 21 Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image with these signs. Both Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. You see, Jesus' sovereignty is seen in his control over his enemies. They can go this far and no further. And when the time comes, it's not even a fight. They're cast into judgment. There's a second observation that's related, and that's that Jesus' sovereignty is seen in his protection of his people. Jesus protects his people. That's what I think we see in Revelation chapter 7. There's 144,000 Jewish servants of God are sealed there. And that sealing speaks of ownership. They're owned by God. And it speaks of protection, that they are under God's protection. And so even though the beast will do his worst, we see this 144,000 once again in chapter 14. And what's interesting is that not one has been lost And now they're on Mount Zion, worshiping Christ. They're with Christ. They're safe and secure forever. Friends, not one has been lost. They're perfectly safe and secure because the Lord Jesus is powerful and able to keep all that his Father give him. And we see that in the book of Revelation. What an encouragement to us to know that Jesus protects us. What an encouragement in uncertain times. We live in uncertain days. We don't know what's going to play out geopolitically in coming days as it relates to nations and wars and treaties and difficulties and conflicts. We do know this. In the midst of all of it, King Jesus is sovereign and in control. 
And so we have no reason to be afraid. We have every reason to pray and to praise. Our God does not always keep us from suffering, does he? But he always keeps us through suffering. And that's the hope that he will hold us fast. So that's our second truth in chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 16, verse 22. You see that Jesus is sovereign over history. He controls his enemies and he protects his people. And he does so to the very end of history when he wraps all things up in his glory. There's a third truth. Jesus brings final judgment. You see this in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1 through chapter 21, verse 8. In chapter 17, verse 1, we come to the third major vision of this book. At the beginning of the vision, John sees a great prostitute who is called Babylon the Great. Now, the prostitute is mentioned earlier, just briefly mentioned in chapter 14 and chapter 16. But now this is the first time in Revelation that we get a real description of this enemy of God in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual morality, the dwellers on earth had become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus." We're going to discuss the identity of Babylon the Great more thoroughly as we go through the book, but it's enough to say that I understand Babylon to represent the capital city of the final apostate human civilization. Babylon the Great is the final embodiment of the evil world system that even now wars against the people of God. It uses wealth, it uses pleasure, it uses sensuality to draw people into idolatry so they do not worship the true God, but they worship the things of this passing world. And Babylon the Great also wars against the saints of God, and she puts them to death. And so great is the slaughter that in verse 6, she's pictured as drunk off of the blood of the saints who have been slaughtered. And again, looking at the picture, looking at the image, it seems like God's enemies are so strong. What can, what can help? What can stop this? But then, of course, the third vision teaches that the enemies of God are nothing compared with Jesus. Really, these four chapters are really just kind of one continual unveiling of the judgment of God that's going to fall on them. First, and really most surprisingly, Babylon the Great is going to be judged. But the one who destroys her, well, it's actually the Antichrist and the other world leaders who support him. You see that in chapter 17, verse 16 and 17. And Why would they do that? Because their sovereign God put it in their hearts to do so. And the destruction of Babylon is going to be so sudden and so great. It's going to be like a, a vast rock thrown into the sea, never to be seen again. That's what it says in chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, In this way, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never be found again. 
Then in Revelation chapter 19, you hear about the defeat of the Antichrist and the false prophet. They marshal their forces and they surround uh, the great city and they're trying to attack the Lord. But then he defeats them by the word of his mouth and they're captured and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire and all of their forces are slaughtered. And then in Revelation chapter 20, we read about the defeat of Satan, the dragon. At first, a great angel comes down and binds Satan, and he is put into the abyss. He's in the abyss for a thousand years so that he can no longer deceive the nations. And then those who had been martyred for their faith in Jesus, they come alive to reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, Satan is released for one final rebellion against God with humanity who he's gathered for that purpose. But of course, Satan is captured, and he is likewise thrown into the lake of fire where he will spend eternity forever and ever, which explains why he is so malicious. He knows his time is coming to the end soon. Following this, in chapter 20, verse 11 to verse 15, you see the judgment of all humanity. It's one of the most sobering passages in the Bible to think about the fact that all must stand before God one day and give an account for their life. Those whose names are found written in a book, it's called the book of life, well, they're safe. They enter into heaven. But those whose names are not found written in the book of life, they're judged by their deeds, and all of them, all of them are likewise cast into the lake of fire along with Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. It's a sobering passage, but we need to read it. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15 Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, friends, in our days, the enemies of God, they seem so strong. But here we see in this vision that they are nothing compared to Jesus. And the day is coming when they will all be defeated and it will not even be a fight. Jesus will cast them into judgment with devastating power. Why? Because Jesus is the one who brings final judgment. The authority is his to do so. Here's the application. It's an obvious application. We must be ready for the day of judgment. Friend, you're given 70 to 80 years. And you're given 70 and 80 years largely by the mercy of God in order to prepare for one single day. And that's when you must stand before God. And the vast majority of humanity lives their life as if they're going to live forever. And they seek all the pleasure and all the joy and all the, all the promotions and status they can for as long as possible, little knowing that they really only need to be prepared for one thing, and it's this day. And the Bible teaches us it's going to be solemn and weighty. My, friend, my, my question for you, friend, is are you prepared for the day? You see, there is hope in this passage. There is this thing called the book of life. And those whose name are found written in the book of life, they enter into heaven. They're safe. They're secure. But so many, well, their names are not written in the book of life, and they're judged by their works. And it's so important to see that anyone who is judged by their works 
they will not pass the test. Oh, the Bible's so clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who are the ones who have their names written in the book of life? Well, they are precisely the ones who trust in Jesus Christ. They're the ones who turn away from living for themselves and what they can get and acquire in this world, and instead they prepare themselves to stand before God by fleeing to the Savior. You see, the Bible teaches that we were all created for God. We were made for Him. That's why we have these deep longings in our hearts that we try to fill with other things, whether it's money or sex or power. We're trying to fill this gap in our life, but it's never enough. Why? Because we were made for God, and yet we were all born sinful and separated from Him. And so instead of living for Him, we decided it would be better for us to live for ourselves, to pursue our own way, to try to make our own meaning and our own purpose and gather our own identity and pretend kind of a hope against hope that it's just going to keep going on and on and on and on forever. And I'd rather put, you know, earbuds in my ears than think about death and the fact that this circus must one day come to an end. That's what sin does. It makes us crazy. It makes us insane. But Jesus came to rescue us from that insanity. That's the good news. God the Father sent His Son into the world. This is where the hope is that life is offered. It's offered through Christ who lived a perfect life. Jesus came not just to be a moral teacher. He came to be the Savior. He came to be the substitute. He came to live the kind of life that we've all failed to live. And then when the time was right, He laid down His life on the cross. Why? As a sacrifice, bearing in Himself the wrath of God. All the weight of the lake of fire for all eternity put on Him in the place of his people, so that we, those who trust in him, would never know it. That's why Jesus died. And then he rose from the dead. And now there's glorious good news. And the glorious good news is that the way to have life is to trust in Christ. It's to turn away from your sin. It's to not try to be good enough for God, not try to be more Christian-y, not try to be more religious, not go to church more. No, none of that. It is to acknowledge the fact that you have failed to live the kind of life that would make you worthy of standing in the presence of God and instead fleeing to Christ, who is the Savior. You see, what's tremendous about Revelation chapter 20 is that Jesus is the judge. And what's tremendous about the gospel is that Jesus is also the Savior. And right now, there's salvation. If you'll run to Him, if you'll trust in Him, even now, salvation is offered. And if you trust in Christ, then on that great and solemn day, you will be safe. It's like Christ will put His arm around you and say, this one belongs to me. Your name written in the book of life. And the Bible tells us that that was God's plan from eternity past. So friend, trust in Jesus. Trust in Christ. Do that this morning. Don't delay. Don't tell yourself you'll do it later. Put your trust in him this morning. There's a fourth truth that we need to see from Revelation this morning. Much more briefly, Jesus guides his people safely home. We live in a broken world. The Russian invasion tells us this. We see this. Of course, we see it all around us. This world is not the way it is supposed to be. It is vain to try to find lasting life and meaning here. But you see, the book of Revelation doesn't leave us hopeless because the book of Revelation tells us that a much better world is coming. The book of Revelation tells us that history is going somewhere wonderful. This dying world will pass away, but Christ is coming to make all things new. And he's going to bring in a new heaven 
and a new earth. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Beginning in verse 9, the fourth vision really picks up where the third vision leaves off. The third vision, after the final judgment, it gives us a picture of a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more pain and no more suffering and no more war and no more sorrow and no more death. It's a beautiful place. It's a place where God dwells with his people. But from Revelation chapter 21, verse 9 to the end of the book, we see that it's also a place of intimacy with God. The new Jerusalem, the holy city, is pictured as a bride. Pictured as a bride of Christ coming down to her husband. And the idea is that all who dwell with Christ will dwell with him in rich intimacy and close communion. And this world would be a place of light. The Bible says its lamp is the lamb, and it will be a place of life. The water of life flows from the throne of God and of the lamb down the city's main street. And Jesus is the one who guides his people home. Jesus is the one through whom we receive access into this great and eternal city. You know, the city that has foundations that can't be shaken. It's through him. It's through him. Well, Jesus is also the one that promises that all who trust in him will reach that happy shore. And again, we have hope. The book of Revelation ends with an invitation. I love the invitation. Chapter 22, verse 17. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. And so as we conclude the sermon this morning, it's again an invitation for you to come to Christ and find life in him. Drink deeply. Drink freely. You can't earn it, but praise God, you don't have to. Just receive it. And those of us who know the Lord, let's pray that our time together as a church studying Revelation will be a time of spiritual growth be a time where we understand the glory of Christ more richly. It'll be a time when we become more heavenly minded as we think about this great city which is to come as we long for our true home. Friends, the, the world around us is broken and looking at the world around us, it's clear that Jesus is coming soon. And so I can think of no better book to be studying than this one. And may God help us as we study in coming days. And let's pray.